You're listening to a ComicsXF podcast. WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the ComicsXF interview podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lasowitz. And this week's guest is the co-creator of Inferno Girl Red, currently funding its second volume on Kickstarter, Matt Groom. Welcome. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate you having me on here. So, Matt, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? Oh, I mean, the yeah, comics have been around in one form or another, I think, before I had, like, true memories. Um, I think this is a, a very specifically Australian thing, but do you guys have news agents in America? Um, where do you get your newspapers from? Is that like a corner store? Uh, that used to be more of a thing. I mean, when I started reading comics, there was, like basically a news agents that had a spinner rack yeah well we we have news agents down here in australia and in most places in australia that's the only place you could get comics and they would have one or two marvel or dc comics and it would you know they would not be regular so you might be able to get like issue 52 of batman at some point and then a few months later you might get issue 60 but what was extremely consistent for some reason everywhere is the phantom the Phantom comics all the time, consistently on every rack, never miss an issue. Um, and I was, I never like loved the Phantom, but I was exposed to a lot of the Phantom. So I think the Phantom's the big sort of like dominant early memory. Um, but I think when I really got into comics was like a lot of people in my generation watching Batman, the animated series, um, which drew me into that character. And that got me to travel to the next town over to find my nearest comic book store, which was actually a combination record and comic store. And there I found my first trade paperbacks. And the first one I picked up was a Grant Morrison JLA trade, um, which was just a value proposition in my mind. I was like, I'm looking for Batman, but if I can get all these other guys as well, fantastic. And that was actually from the middle of Grant's run. So I was thrown into the deep end with like Plastic Man and Big Barter and Zoriel um, and Shaggy Man. Uh, so I, I was like right right into the deep end of the the DC continuity pool. But that it was thrilling. I felt like I discovered a whole new world with all of these secret strange characters that nobody else had ever heard of. And from there I was hooked. Fun fact, today is the, since we just talked about Batman the Animated Series, today is the 31st anniversary of the first appearance of Harley Quinn. Oh, wow. Well, there you are. Yep. Joker's Favor aired 31 years ago today. Oh, my gosh. Oh, we're old. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so being inundated or or having Phantom Comics available to you as a young lad when the Billy Zane movie came out in 1995 Uh or 96, whenever it was, were you like ready to go for that? (laughs) Absolutely. And I saw the movie and I, and that made me go, maybe I've been misjudging Phantom comics. Cause I, I really enjoyed the movie as a kid. So I'm going to go back and read more. And I went back and was like, Oh no, no, I was right. The first time these are very different in tone to the thrilling swashbuckling adventures of this film. Um, But man, that film still really holds a special place in my heart. I, I think that, Treat Williams as Xander Drax in that film is up there with cinema villains. Like no villain is having more fun than that man. He loves murdering in creative ways. 
and it brings him so much joy. And you love to see someone living their passion like that. So big fan of Zeta Drax. That's uh, that's how I feel about Robert Patrick and Double Dragon. It's a terrible movie, but he's yeah. having fun. <laughs> yeah, and that's all you ought to see, right? Like, it lights you up when you see someone enjoying their work. And the villains always have the most fun in a an a iffy movie. Absolutely, yeah. It's true. You can see why they'd really, like, hunger for those roles, because you have these very, like like the straight man characters that have to be very straight down the middle but then the villains can just be eccentric and chew scenery and um show their range yeah paul sorvino in the rocketeer hey i may be a gangster but i'm an american gangster uh-huh oh that's, oh, that's good stuff man i have to watch the rocketeer again it's been too long you know that that was a thing in the 90s though that like that brief window where you know we didn't have a formula for superhero movies yet, so they were mining yeah. the pulps, like the Phantom yeah. and the Shadow. Like that was the it's movie equivalent wonderful... of when we all got into swing music for six months in 1998. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's that wonderful thing where Hollywood studios are unable to learn the right lessons from big successes they like <laughs> batman 89 is huge and they're like oh great then obviously what people are going to respond to is all of the, those pop serial characters like this will be the ticket so you get like dick tracy and the phantom and like and they keep keep trying for a while like no we're, we're sure this was a hit batman was huge this this must be it and then it took them another, what, 15 years after that? But, oh, maybe it's superheroes, actually. Maybe that's what the people want. <laughs> Forgot about that Dick Tracy movie. That movie oh, was good. That It was a movie. And <laughs> when you look at the cast on that, thing, I mean, Beatty, Pacino. Oh, Pacino's man. another one. Ooh, that scenery. There was nothing left of that scenery after Al Pacino was done with it. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, I mean, they all thought they were going to be Jack Nicholson playing the Joker, right? Like, to their minds, that was the equivalency. They didn't know that Dick Tracy was not Batman. <laughs> Want to get nuts? Let's get nuts, eh? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> the movie had nothing to do with Spencer Tracy. But, uh, so you are here to talk about your Kickstarter campaign for the second volume of Inferno Girl Red, uh, your Tokusatsu oh, yeah. boarding school teen superhero series with artist Erica Duraso, colorist Igor Monti, letterer Becca Carey, editor Kyle Higgins et al. Uh, co-host, transform into summary reader. When her new home of Apex City was ripped out of existence and cast into darkness, Cassia Costa had to embrace an ancient power to become the legendary hero Inferno Girl Red. She rose to the challenge, pushing herself farther than she ever thought possible. But though Cassia protected the city from its first major threat, it cost her dearly. Now, still reeling from a heartbreaking loss, Cassia must forge a relationship with a new mentor and expand an unlikely team because the consequences of her previous victory have come back to haunt her and a villainous duo is on the rise. So we're we're a little bit into the campaign now. How are things going so far? Oh, terrifying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, I think we're definitely on that um, horrifying cusp where things really go either way. Um, so we're, we're putting all onto it. We've been absolutely um, 
thrilled by all the support we've gotten so far and people have been so supportive, but we still have a ways to go. Um, we don't know if we're going to get there. So yeah, all the support we can get is hugely appreciated. I, I do like to say early on as well, um, we are offering book one in hypercover and in digital. So if you haven't ever experienced Inferno Go Red or anything Massiverse in general, uh, you're absolutely welcome in and you'll be able to just jump right in at the start with no other reading required. Uh, take us back to the very beginning here. You know, what is the origin uh, of of Inferno Girl, Girl Red in terms, not so much in terms of story, but in terms of like how long you've been working, you know, on this project with this character? Yeah. Oh, it's been many, many years now. Uh, it actually started, I want to say five years ago, maybe. Um, I was in a Facebook group for my local comic book store and someone popped in there and said, hey, my niece is a big fan of the Marvel superhero films that hasn't ever really read any comics. What's a good place for her to start? And I started going through in my head, um, trying to figure out what would be a good recommendation. And I really struggled um, because my first thought was what really got me reading comics regularly, which is Ultimate Spider-Man, which I love. And I think it's a great teenage superhero story, but it's over 20 years old now. And it like, it, feels it and i think it's still great um it's a great read but it doesn't necessarily reflect the modern teenage experience um so then i thought about things like miss marvel uh which i think is genuinely great but you get one issue into that and you're into all of the human stuff and then the book reboots and it's very hard to like where do you start with the, the different volume ones uh and dc was doing uh, and continues to do a bunch of really great graphic novels uh, that are sort of YA focused, but they're all one-offs and sort of set separately. So you can read one and then that's it. It's hard to know where to go next. And I'm sitting there thinking like, there should just be a superhero story that is like YA targeted, but enjoyable for everybody that uh, feels like it reflects the modern teenage experience, that it feels modern and fresh and you can just read book one, book two, book three, book four without complication. Uh, and at that point, I was working on self-made, my first image series, and um, really enjoying the freedom provided by image and feeling a sense of responsibility uh, that comes with that freedom and going like, you know what? I have the freedom and the opportunity here. I should try this. I should try and help provide that. And the next step from there was um, like, I wanted it to be a teen girl because I wanted to, you know, give the world more um, female superheroes in that way. But I knew that that's not something that I could do by myself. I couldn't authentically represent that, that story. Um, so the hunt was on for a female co-creator and finding someone that um, was willing to work with me because I knew who I was um, that had the artistic skills necessary, who could handle huge emotion and also vibrant action uh, and was available <laughs> was was a multi-year hunt. But as soon as we found Erica, we knew that we'd found the right person. And we had a few conversations and she was so excited by my early thoughts about the story and brought so much of her own personality to it. And from there we were, we were off. Now, after the campaign for volume one, you got to publish Infernal Go Red through Image. You know, was that something that had been part of the plan just because, you know, the other massive book, book 
massive verse books are publishing through there or just an opportunity that arose and surprised you? Yeah, that was always part of the plan. Um, it was been a very interesting path to market for us because uh, it's not completely unique, but relatively unique for superhero comics publishing. We wanted to do a graphic novel series specifically. Uh, and part of that was because of that desire of mine to bring in people who are new to the form. Um, I love writing single issues and I love like trades, but when they're collected together, it's a different form of reading experience. I think at least if you're writing single issues, right, you end up with a different shape to a graphic novel. Um, so I knew that it, a graphic novel would be the best way to tell the story you want to tell and, and bring in hopefully the sort of reason we, we wanted to bring in, but funding a graphic novel, like 120 pages without any early sorts of um, income that you get from single issues was very difficult. And our options were really compromise the plan and do single issues or take it to a publisher who would take some of the stake in the property and also some editorial control, which we were uh, really didn't want to do because we had very specific views about how we wanted to handle the story and we didn't want to be pushed in other directions. Um, or the last option was to take it to Kickstarter and see if people would be willing to back the book and support the book and help us create it so that we could then bring it to market. And we actually didn't end up intending to do single issues at all originally, but once we'd finished, we realized that it broke relatively cleanly into three chunks. Uh, and those were oversized. They're sort of 40 pages each on average. So almost double um, the standard issue of comics, but they felt good enough to be able to offer as sort of whole items of story as, as single issues of comics. And yeah, then we got the, the, the collected edition, which has become our graphic novel, which is now just now going out to bookstores and libraries, which is very exciting. It was where we wanted to be all along, which we'd only do thanks to our Kickstarter supporters. How, how far into the process did you know you wanted there to be a volume two or that you were able to do a volume two? Oh, I mean, I knew from the start that I wanted there to be a volume two. Um, I always intended this to be a series of graphic novels. Um, I think, again, it comes back to that, you know, what we're trying to bring in that thing that I felt like should always be there. And I think one of the things that people enjoy about the Marvel films is the sense that it's an ongoing saga that you can um, keep investing in these characters and, and, you know, anticipate their return. So we wanted it to be, ongoing in that sense, despite being graphic novels. But um, as for uh, knowing that we could, I, I, at this point in time, as of recording, we still don't know if there'll be a book too. So nothing is set in stone, but it was always our hope. Um, and I think like, I, I really believe in building with that in mind so that you can plant seeds for future stories and you're not painting yourselves in dirty corners or having to come up with a sequel that, um, you know, tries to reinvent the wheel because you've told everything you wanted to tell in the first one. So yeah, I was always contracted with that in mind. What is, what's a lesson that you learned from kickstarting volume one that you're bringing to the volume two campaign? I think we really learned the value of communication um, and how, just how supportive the Kickstarter community can be because we had some trouble with the first one. Um, the first real hurdle that we hit was 
Erica, my creator and artist in front of Photo Go Red, uh, injured her arm very badly from drawing 10 to 12 hours a day and ended up in hospital. She couldn't lift a fork for like a, a month or two, let alone a pencil. Um, and that threw us off schedule. And I had to go to the Kickstarter backers and explain the situation. And thankfully, we'd been doing regular updates and sharing pages so people knew we'd been in production this whole time. Uh, but people were incredibly supportive. And um, I guess because they knew, you know, we'd been working on it and been seeing progress, they said, take care of your health, um, totally support Erica, the book will come when it'll come. And then once we got to shipping, we were in the middle of the sort of great COVID international shipping breakdown um, where it was taking three months for crates to get into ports. And I was pulling my hair out and stressing out about how much that was throwing off the schedule. But again, I was just very upfront with everybody and honest and let everyone know what was happening. And uh, yeah, everyone was just very understanding. And that made all the difference in the world. Uh, and I was also just surprised by how involved people are in Kickstarter. Like before anyone had read book one, we were getting fan art. Um, people were like sharing their excitement so enthusiastically. It was just really, really uplifting. Given the creative team is is the same from the first volume, do you feel like you've all kind of settled into a sweet groove with one another? Yeah, definitely. I think thankfully we've always had a great working relationship, um, but we've definitely, yeah, a well-oiled machine now. I think more than anything, we really understand each other's strengths and can play to that a bit better. Um, I know the sort of stuff that Erica is going to hit out of the park. I know the sort of stuff that uh, Eagle's going to hit out of the park. Um, I think more than any colorist I've ever worked with, actually, he has the specific styles and tools um, that I saw come to life in book one that I now know are like part of his arsenal that I'll write to those moments. I'll like write to in like action scenes, for example, he does this thing where in these, like the peak moments of the fight of impact, he'll invert the colors to emphasize the moment. Um, and now that I know he likes to do that, I'm like, great, let's write more of those in. Cause they looked so cool. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a great feeling to be able to work so closely with, a group of people, especially in a book like this, where you are co-creators and, you know, there's no, there's no corporate mandate. It's just discussions with everybody agreeing on what to do and deciding to do cool stuff. Um, even if it's not the most profitable thing, we're like, yeah, let's get this paper stock. We think it'd look really cool. And off we go. It's yeah. It's a, a nice feeling of community. You've worked with, with Kyle Higgins, both as, as a co-writer on stuff and also with him as your editor, uh, what is the main difference between the two Kyle Higginses? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not a huge difference. I think the main difference is when he's editing, I do more work. Um, but yeah, it's it's all just conversations, right? I think we have pretty similar sensibilities in some ways. Um, and I think to co-writing means, I guess in the same way that I have that working relationship with Eric and Igor, we both know how we both like to write um, and what we mean. And sometimes like what the note behind the note is, you know, so, like often Kyle will say like, oh, I don't think this moment is working. I think you should do this. And I don't agree with the suggestion necessarily, but I understand where that impulse is coming from. Like, okay. No, I think I know what you mean, but would something like this work instead? Like, oh yeah, perfect. And then off we go. So I think it's just another way in which our, 
working relationship has become more robust and uh, efficient <laughs> um, and casual, which is nice. Now, you also have a, a design agency involved in this, correct? Yeah, sure do. That's uh, For the People, which is an agency that I used to work at as a writer for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very near and dear to my heart because they're also an independent agency. It started when I joined, it was six people um, and has since grown to about 20, but we're still uh, like a tight knit little group. Um, and I really believe in the value and importance of good design, especially at image where everything is under your control, I think you have a responsibility to make sure that every part of it is as good as it possibly can be. And frankly, I think that's something that at other publishers, it's not always valued or appreciated as much. Um, that's not definitely not true across the board. I think like Boom, for example, kills it on the design very regular and I'm always very impressed. Uh, and then at, at the other major publishers, it can be a little inconsistent. It seems to depend a little bit on the editorial office, maybe. Um, but I knew I wanted to get the best of the best. And it just so happened that I worked with some world-class award-winning graphic designers um, who were my buds. So we just offered them a small percentage on the property and said, do you want to join us in this little endeavor? And they, they said yes. And um, they're basically just like another member of the creative team as a collective. Now, uh, I, I always love when guests have, uh, you know, a lot of stuff going on behind them because then I get to spend the whole hour <laughs> looking over your shoulder, bookshelves and that. Yeah. But is that is that an Infernal Girl red helmet uh, over, over your it, right it there? It sure is. Yeah. it. Uh, one of our uh, reward tiers for the last campaign was full-size replica Infernal Girl red helmets. Uh, and they are very cool unfortunately <laughs> i have maybe the world's biggest head and it doesn't quite fit over my head but it fits over erica's which i think means it is to scale right like erica is a smaller female person i have a huge chunky man head um so it makes sense that my big old noggin doesn't quite squeeze in there but it's it is so exquisitely designed they came out so much better than than i had anticipated so i think it's one of maybe 12 in the world over there Oh wow, that's 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 pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah. Is there another piece of Inferno Girl Red swag you would want to make? I mean, is there anything particularly? I mean, I assume everybody wants an action figure of their character. Oh yeah, absolutely. An action figure, like that's true across the massive verse. We've all talked about action figures very regularly. Uh, for Inferno Girl Red specifically. Both Eric and I, we talk about this a lot. Um, you know, you dream about one day when we're huge, we're going to make this stuff. Um, the two big things is uh, replica bracelets, um, Infogo Red bracelets with the jewels set mm-hmm. in them. Um, those would be very luxury items. And the other one is when Cassia is Infogo Red, her shoes are the coolest. Um, that's one of those things that, one of the many things Erica brings to the project is that she is incredibly stylish and everyone looks so cool in a way that I just absolutely am not. But Inferno Gored's shoes as sneakers would be just the coolest things. So yeah, bracelets and sneakers are probably top of my list. Action figures just behind. 
Yeah, think thinking back to Igor for a second. You know, one of my mm-hmm. looking in book one, one of my favorite things that happens a couple times is that uh when when Harriet uh Cassio's roommate, who's normally very like chill, is surprised by something and she ends up turning like like paper white. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's great. I think it's one of the benefits of having a really tight knit team because that effect is like a combination of Erica doing that more sort of like chibi esque style, mm-hmm. and then uh, you're te- like running with that. Um, and I know that they talk about that stuff before Erica even gets to that point that she she'll say like, "Oh, I'm thinking about this sort of thing. Could we do this? How would you handle it?" And he goes like, "Oh yeah," and then like we'll do a rough sketch, and she's like, "Great, I'll work that in." um yeah it's there they have really become an art dream team and it's so cool to see them both level up individually but also just elevate each other so much uh you know another another thing i noticed or or that i believe i noticed because i i may be misinterpreting it is cassia appears to have a form of like vitiligo or you know when the pets when mm. patches of skin lose their pigment um yeah how did that become part of her her character? That actually was all Erica. Um, Erica did a couple of different des- potential designs for Cassia, and se- uh, three actually. I remember specifically and sent them through, and they're all great. But one of them in particular, as soon as I saw her, it was the strangest sensation. It was like Cassia had always existed, and she just drew Cassia like out of the out of the ether that like yeah Cassia exists as a person and, and Erica just illustrated her I was like oh I like all of these but for some reason that's Cassia and Erica said oh thank god like that's that's the one I wanted to I didn't want to just send one but that's the one I wanted you to pick and that Cassia yeah had vitiligo and it's not something that I had you know written into the character anyway but Erica just felt it was it felt right and in some ways it has informed the way I write Cassia, not that it ever comes up explicitly in the story, but Cassia as a character is someone who has struggled in a lot of ways, um, financially, socially, because she's had to move around from city to city. She's always just kind of been on the back foot in various different ways. And I think that's just another small thing that she's had to deal with and overcome. And it's not something that you know, it's a topic of conversation for her every day, but it it just yeah is another small thing that informs that that bit of a shell that she has around over herself and that um slightly self protective um realism or pragmatism you might say. So you know, you're writing a boarding school story, which means teens, and yes. it's also set uh you know in 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 a future like. Uh, place and time how do you go about writing future teen speak without sounding like stanley in 1967 when he realized that college <laughs> kids thought he was cool and he started wearing wigs uh um listen i'm not saying i'm not gonna start wearing wigs just to be clear that 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 may still happen um i mean i am a big believer in just writing people you know um I think you know. I, I sometimes get asked about like, oh, how do you how do you write girls? Like they're so they're so different. 
Um, and like, yeah, there are definitely different life experiences that you need to be mindful of and empathetic of and take into account. But if you just write people as people uh, and not as caricatures, in most instances, you'll be okay. And I think teens are the same way. Um, and I do think that being a teenager, there's some level of universality about it, that it, it has a very specific feeling and very specific challenges. And I think it's different in some ways now because of the state of the world. That's something that we wanted to bring into the book, um, not, necessarily, not necessarily literally, but to represent what it feels like to be a teenager at a time when it feels like the world is kind of teetering on the edge of disaster and you're the generation that everyone's looking to to fix all of the problems that everyone else created. Um, so I wanted to be mindful of that and make sure that that was built into it. But yeah, for the most part, it's just making sure that you are genuinely empathizing with your characters and writing them as people. Because uh, Tokusatsu is one of the influences behind Inferno Girl Red, the transformation sequence is key. <laughs> yes. What what makes for a good transformation sequence in a comic? And is it harder to achieve when you're dealing with static images as opposed to you know, like animation or live action? Yeah, I think it's it is a little more difficult in that you do have to streamline and simplify a little bit. Um because you know, it, it has to be striking and iconic. And I think the more panels you introduce, the less it can, it can become. Um, yeah, it, it take away from the dynamism of it a little bit. But I also think that th there is something universal about it. Um, and in some ways I see some, like, some similarities between tokusatsu and like musicals in that it's when the emotion and the passion hits this crescendo that the way of being and expressing yourself in the normal world can no longer really express or show everything that's inside. And then it sort of bursts forth into this new form. So you're trying to capture that moment of, of transformation, both of the person, but also of reality in some ways you go from the regular world to this new place where things are differently possible um so yeah i want to make sure i brought that in and i also wanted to make sure i brought in a little bit of like the non-diegetic elements um like in a common writer they'll have this non-diegetic omnipresent narrator who will like introduce these characters and uh in some ways it's kind of like professional wrestling right like all the, the wrestlers get their big intros and it just like <laughs> amps you up for the moment it's so cool so we, we did that for our heroes and our villains as well um and uh, yeah i think a lot of it to me is just about making sure that it's not just a shallow cut. Um, like I've, I've been very keen to try and learn a lot from Tokusatsu about how they handle stories and the sort of meaning behind them. Um, and some of that comes from my experience with Power Rangers uh, and through that Super Sentai and Ultraman as well, of course, and w working with the folks at Super Raya. Uh, but I think there's so much for us to learn from Tokusatsu and we can use that to, I think it's always combat some of the problems that Western super, superhero stories have. So my thinking was that if we can do that, do it authentically, um, try and mix it with a bunch of other influences to make sure it's not just a pastiche and do it earnestly. Like I love Tokusatsu. This isn't a, a parody or, or um, certainly not making fun of any everything. It's very pure in its love of the form. So 
bringing all those things together, we hope that it um, it authentically honors that. Uh, pepper in a question here from our grand Twitter inquisitor, uh, Esmal Fangirl, who asked, well, who wrote, first of all, really enjoyed the first volume of Inferno Girl. So she's excited for the next one. Uh, okay. And then asked, uh, tokusatsu appreciation and, and inspired projects seem to be on the rise in the last couple of years. What do you think that is? I mean, I'm sure there's a confluence of different factors. I think some of it is just it has been gradually introduced to us generationally and the people that grew up with Power Rangers like myself are now um, keen to go to the source, but also like we've grown up now with anime and manga is the biggest selling form of comic book in America, you know, mm -hmm. like we're pretty primed for it culturally. But I also think that as a society, um, the Western world is becoming more comfortable with creative forms of storytelling where you can take very earnest and authentic ideas but express them in wildly vivid ways um i think th things like uh everything everywhere all at once or even barbie right like barbie has the wildest conception of its world you know like Bar barbie world exists in its own land and there's like a magical transportation process and there's just a lot of magic going on uh but it's using all of that to tackle a very serious subject and it's very earnest in its emotion and to me that's kind of the heart of tokusatsu is being wildly creative and vivid and expressing all of your ideas in these very like starkly visual and yeah just creative ways but making sure that's all built on an earnest foundation of emotion and character work. Um, so, yeah, I think we're just like, we're appreciating how good that is and we're getting over some of our hangups maybe. Um, and yeah, like we're finally coming to Tokusatsu rather than it coming to us. I do like the idea of Barbie as a live action anime. I feel like that, that, that fits, oh. that works. <laughs> Honestly, like, you're a few steps away from Sailor Moon, really. There's there's more crossover than I think people think. I'm trying to come up with a good Ken Tuxedo Mask joke, and it's not coming. <laughs> it's right on the tip of my there, brain. There's something. There's something. Well, yeah. Fill in your own uh, Ken Tuxedo crossover. Yeah. Uh, so a uh, couple of questions and answer as, as fully or as not as possible, because obviously not asking for spoilers. Uh, but you know, Kazia is going to have a different mentor in Volume Two. Uh, avoiding details on the spoiler here, but um, her relationship with her mom, who was her mentor, was really central to Book yeah. One. So I assume things with Doctor Caro are going to be different now. Hundred percent. Yes, I think Cassia is on her journey of figuring out who she is and how she wants to operate in the world and um, what she owes to the world and what she means to the world. And I think her mother had a very specific idea about all of that stuff and was incredibly supportive, um, but I also think maybe had her own foibles that weren't well, entirely healthy in some ways, got her into the situation that she got into. Um, whereas Dr. Carrow is very different. Uh, has a very different sort of worldview, has different things to teach Cassia. 
but also has different hangups um, as much as Dr. Caro's previous experiences on paper might be very informative and helpful for Cassia. Dr. Caro has been operating by herself for a very long time and I think has learned the consequences and the, the shortcomings of that, but hasn't necessarily learned how to fix that. And Cassia is going to have to figure out how much to learn from this person and how much to strike out in her own direction and do her own thing. Um, but the, the whole series is really just about Cassia figuring out, you know, who she's going to become and the challenges that shape her and the people that shape her. And this next volume is about a different group of people having a different effect on Cassia and Cassia having a different effect on them. Speaking of groups of people, the copy that we read at the top mentions the team. And we got a, a decent amount of Harriet in volume one. And we briefly met Lillian and yes. the bit where she just matter of factly figures out Cassie's <laughs> identity is one of my favorite beats in that entire book. <laughs> I, I loved that. Um, but Thank now with the introductions out of the way, we're, are we going to be digging more into those supporting characters in volume two? Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Cassie are figuring out what her new approach is going to be as everything's kind of falling apart. Um, it's definitely going to involve bringing in a support network more explicitly and figuring out what their role is in all of this and how they relate to each other. Um, so yeah, much more Harriet and Lillian in this one and having them more explicitly join in um, has been really fun and yeah, but the, the, that three sort of core trio is going to be really important to Inferno Girl Red moving forward. Um, and I'm very excited to be able to show people what they're like as kind of a unit, as a team, like how they complement each other and, and sort of the friction that's there. And um, yeah, I think it'd be very cool for people to see how they are like as a group um, once they pass their initial introductions. This idea of putting a school full of genius teenagers in a seemingly hopeless situation and then testing their belief and their resilience. W was that a thing where like when you were initially scripting and conceiving the, you know, your story for the first volume, you were like, yep, this is my climate change allegory. And then the pandemic happened and you were like, oh, it's also this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like the pandemic element of it just kind of compounded everything, right? Like it was already the case that, I mean, at the design agency that I used to work at, we would have a lot of quite young people working for us and they were brilliant. And it was a frequent discussion of uh, the older members of the team there, how embarrassing it was, how well-formed and socially aware and empathetic um, and capable these young people were because um, we would reflect on how we were at that age and be like, that we were nowhere near any of that. Um, and it was always so morbidly fascinating to me that for them and the people slightly younger than them, everyone around them would say like, oh, like you guys are so clever and so smart and you're going to be the ones to figure out everything and solve all of these problems when all the problems that the world's facing weren't created by them at all. And it's, uh, in my view, really unfair to put all of that on them, especially when 
when you're a teenager, you have so much to deal with already, like figuring out the world and figuring out your deal as a person and like deciding who you're going to be is already more than anyone should have to deal with. But then literally dumping the fate of the world on them and being like, oh yeah, you guys got this, right? You'll be fine <laughs> is absurd. Um, but they don't really have any choice. And that's kind of what the book is about. Um, and figuring out because when, you know, the odds are against you and it seems like everything is saying that you're all going to fail horribly, you need a certain amount of faith or belief to change that. Um, but we've also all seen the dangers of unmitigated belief when you lose your grounding in reality and you become disconnected from yeah, reality and sources of truth, that that can be very dangerous as well. You can become lost in self-delusion. So it's this fascinating tightrope to walk of how do you believe in the impossible without losing connection to reality? And that's the the central tension of the series for these teenagers as they, they, they try to save Apex City in themselves. This book is, we've mentioned it, but it's part of the massive verse, uh, in, which includes Radiant Black and dead lucky and no one and rogue son you know i was missing one um, uh, <laughs> and these books take place on a approximately in air quotes normal earth they're all yes. set on cities that exist and at a level of tech outside the hero tech that exists dead lucky is a little further technologically advanced but not nearly as far out as what we see in Apex City. Yes. That's all to say, uh, how much of this stuff you conceived before it was going to be part of the Massiverse, and how much of you changed and played with that uh, to link it or make it part of a wider world? Yeah, I think we all actually came, were working on our series well before we had any intentions of licking them up. Um, it, it started, I think, at first with Kyle, Ryan, and myself all working on our series individually. And then because we all know each other and are friends, we're like, oh, hey, what are you working on? And hang those discussions and seeing both how they were different and also the similarities and, and having that conversation of like, you know, we could do something interesting here where we try and do our version of a shared universe that hopefully has some of the benefits without some of the problems of restrictions of sort of the corporate version of that um and that was one of the reasons why actually we decided to set infernal red in its own universe um in the sort of like cosmological sense so cassie's world is not the same world as nathan and marshall and radiant black um or dylan over in rogue sun or bb in the dead lucky or uh redacted in no one um but we also wanted to make sure that Cassie could still be a part of things. And that happened to work out quite well with what I was building anyway, because Inferno Go Red is a multiversal story. Uh, the bracelet that gives Cassie her power travels through uh, space and, and across realities to where it's needed to fight this grand cosmological battle that we're going to be learning more about as we go. So it, it just so happened that, um, it was okay that Cassia could be off in her own little world and um, for crossovers like our supermassive stories, she could be uh, whisked across. And in fact, we happened to work out 
um, wearing Cassie's journey ahead of time, a little ahead of where we're at in her own books, she might be traveling and uh, have cause to bump into that earth and uh, accidentally stumble into a crossover. So it's been a, a balancing act, but we wanted to make sure we really threaded that needle because it was so important to us that you don't have to read Supermassive or uh, any of the other Massiveverse books if you want to enjoy Inferno Girl Red and vice versa. Um, we never want the shared universe element to derail anything. My first priority for Inferno Girl Red is still what I set out to do, which is that you can just have book one, book two, book three, read those, not be confused, have no further questions, have a completely satisfying experience. But if you do read multiple massive verse books and then read our super massive crossovers that we do annually or, you know, pick up the card game that we're putting out next year, um, you can have that collective experience. Um, it's been a balancing act, but I, I, it's one I'm really passionate about because I want to make sure that we can take advantage of these possibilities, but not compromise the reading experience for anyone. So someday, someday she'll have to put up with Marshall. <laughs> oh yeah but like cassie's had to go on a road trip with marshall already um and it was very entertaining and that you know she may have to deal with marshall more in the future <laughs> the the first hard cover is is chock-a-block full of back matter and yes. we as a podcast are well on the record as saying we love back matter uh we planning something similar for volume two Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a big fan of back matter too. I, I'm a, a big process nerd. I love seeing page breakdowns. I love seeing like script pages. I love seeing concept art. So absolutely planning on doing more of that. Um, and maybe even a little bit more of my particularly bizarre eccentricities of world building. Like in the first one, we did a like six page breakdown of the fictional sport uh, whole ball that appears in the Infergo Red universe. And I say appears in the biggest of air quotes, because it's very, very not relevant to the plot of book one. Um, but I, yeah, I have this habit of well building a few layers too deep, or you know, maybe just deep enough, depending on your perspective. Um, so I created a whole sport and built that out. And it's like, well, let's just put all the details of that in. Why not? As my next two questions are hold ball related, uh, <laughs> I <laughs> think uh, we, uh, I was curious, uh, had anyone told you they've tried to play hold ball in the real world, like the way people play the weird nonsense wizard sport from the books that we try not to mention nowadays? It hasn't happened yet, uh, in part because I created something that requires a very elaborate setting, like a hold ball court is like a whole thing uh it's very complicated but i've definitely had conversations with people who've read the book who have like one day we need to put this in together like there is the desire out there um so you know once Infernal Goretta hits a sufficient scale and i go bad with money and power you can be assured that the first thing i'll be doing is building a whole cult cotton if i can come over and play and just the the 10 minute time limit was that at all a response to uh, cricket, the sport that will not ever end? Theoretically, that is a big part of Australian sport. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a big sports guy myself. So this was definitely me designing a thing like, what would I watch? Um, what would hold my attention? And yeah, it was it's shorter for sure. It, it's very varied. Uh, there's a lot going on. Um, probably says something about my personality and my um, ability to you know, maintain my attention, but yeah, I think there's definitely some 
some response to that. Uh, yeah, if whole ball could take over cricket as Australia's national sport, that would be very good as far as I'm concerned and, and healthy for the kids of today, I think. And it would keep those pickleball people from moving in. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. So when you're when you're co-writing something like one of the supermassive uh, one shots, you know, and you're in the you know metaphorical writers' room with Kyle, Ryan, Melissa Flores, you know, mm-hmm. how do you all kind of vibe with each other and work to yes and each other? Yeah, I think uh, uh, thankfully we all have shared experiences and you know we're friends and know each other relatively well so it can be kind of casual but um it is actually pretty writer's roomy we have zooms at the start where we sort of like bounce around different conceptual ideas and um i think the the benefit is that we all know our individual worlds really well so um for example in the last one we knew that caleb the medieval rogue son was going to be um you know operating rogue sun at that point when that supermassive came out and we thought that would be a really cool opportunity to do something with that and had this idea of like oh could we do something that links back to uh the medieval time period and at that point i was like oh well you know the inferno Gorod bracelet moves through universes and has existed in perpetuity as far as we know so there could have been an inferno go red back then and maybe caleb knew her and there could be some of a relationship there so Let's chuck that in and we'll just like lob all of these bits together and come up with a very rough outline. And then at that point, we'll just break the script into chunks and assign different parts to each writer. But then after that, we'll all go over each other's stuff. And there's a lot of Google Docs commenting and we'll move stuff around. Uh, It's just, it's very, very iterative. Um, It's kind of amazing that it works, to be honest, given there's so many of us and so many big ideas going around. But we all have good intentions and we all want this weird little experiment of ours to work. So yeah, it all works. Now, Supermassive 2023 ended with an appearance by speaking of medieval, medieval spawn. Yes. How did those negotiations go and did they involve Todd McFarlane making you drink a bunch of water and then not letting you take a bathroom break? <laughs> um, no, our fleeting interactions with the Todd were uh, very pleasant. Um, it was just an idea that we had because we're talking about, you know, that medieval time period. And uh, I think it was Ryan Parrott. It's like, well, you know, we're at Image, Medieval Spawn. And we're like, oh, you reckon? Um, so Kyle, being Kyle, he has this just, he he always shoots for the moon, um, which is how he's done like animated shorts and films and like podcasts with Patton Oswalt and Rachel Lee Cook. Um, he's like, oh yeah, we could get us Todd. So at, uh, San Diego, I think last year, year before, I can't even remember which one, um, Kyle and I, you know, just went up to Todd and quickly pitched him. Yeah. He's like, yeah, man, sounds cool. Let's do it. <laughs> We're like, oh, okay. Um, so we, uh, after we followed up and sent some emails and, um, yeah, the, the sum total of it was. Todd very generously being like, yeah, go for it. Sounds great. And we did. Um, the only bit of logistical back and forth was us uh, obtaining the spawn font so that medieval spawn, you know, spoke correctly in, in lettering. 
Uh, but even that, that was fine. So yeah, and we were so appreciative of Todd's generosity there. It, there was nothing more than a, like, that sounds cool. Go for it, guys. I'm very supportive. And we were off. That's great. That's absolutely great. Now, on the other side of that coin, just to get to get serious for a second here. So uh, you wrote on the Kickstarter page for this campaign. You might have read that this is an odd time for creator-owned comics. It's true. So obviously, I have my own thoughts on this, but you know, I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, what what is your perspective? You know, what are what are you seeing out there these days? I mean, I to some extent. I think the problems are even beyond the industry. I think as a society, we are having uh, economic discussions, which aren't always very helpful. Um, I think that people who aren't rich are suffering the most unsurprisingly. And I think that comics are a populist medium. And when times are tight, comics suffer and i think that's kind of been true universally um and i also think that as corporations uh absorb each other like massive amoeba um it only makes it harder for independent outlets to maintain their operations and break through um and then there's smaller things like uh a power mad billionaire buys the platform that creators have been using to spread the word about their works. And suddenly you find that your uh, tweets, I'm not going to call them posts, your tweets uh, going out to like a fifth of the people that they used to for some strange reason. So yeah, there's a myriad of challenges that are very frustrating, but all we can do is like what we have in our power to control. Right. And I think that um, in some ways that was, you know, part of the grand mission of, of Fedeco Red was to try and grow the pie, you know, it was try and invite people in. Um, I've been focusing a lot on trying to reach out to bookstores and librarians specifically. Um, I did the American librarian conference virtually this year. I did the Australian librarian conference almost the same day this year, which was <laughs> a big time zone kerfuffle. Um, sending like brochures out to libraries really trying to extend the pool and that's not at all to um you know say a bad word about comic shops like i love my local i'm, I'm very supportive of that but i think that they appreciate too like as we grow and reach new people they're likely to come into comic stores and and explore there as well i think it's additive so we've just got to keep trying to push in all of the ways that we can control and hope the sort of macro circumstances improve <laughs> which feels unlikely at this point but you know what can we do but hope ah <laughs> uh, th this too shall pass we can only hope but uh yeah <laughs> uh back to fun stuff uh you had a story in the power rangers 30th anniversary special that just came out oh yeah uh, uh and you co-host a power rangers podcast ranger danger uh mm -hmm. what is your ranger color of choice whoa you believe I don't think I've ever been asked that? Man, I I think the the somewhat unspoken truth of the matter is that the colors are super relevant to Power Rangers, strangely. They don't have any particular consistent meaning. Um, so I think at a certain point it would come down to just picking your favorite color. Um so I would say orange. 
<laughs> and that would probably change day to day. But yeah, something vibrant and optimistic and fun. Orange sounds cool. Okay. Does not work like green, does not work like lanterns. You got to remember that. <laughs> no. But yeah, uh, there's a surprisingly little consistent mythology across the 30 years of the brand. <laughs> uh, from the show that Heim Saban tried to do on the sheep cheap by recycling Japanese footage. Who Can you believe? Can you believe? <laughs> For some reason, he wasn't thinking 30 years down the track with, with his world building. Um, who knew? Oh, boy. But, you know, in your, your time with, with the franchise, uh, have you had any memorable run-ins with, like, actors from the from the show or anything like that? Oh, yeah, quite a few, actually. Um, uh, part of that is just being friends with Kyle. Kyle knows everybody everywhere somehow. <laughs> I don't know. Like, he's, he's superpower. So he knows just a lot of the range of people. Um, he and I just had one really lovely dinner with Walter Jones, who played Zach on the original show one night. Um and he's just the loveliest person. And when we caught up with him, we had dinner and then he was off because he had heard on the outskirts of Chicago, where we were at the time, there was a dancing competition on with an open invitation. He's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go out and, you know, go for a dance. And he didn't know any of the people there. It's just what he just like flies into town and dances off into the night like a magical being. He's incredible. Um, but I think probably my most memorable experience was at, Power Morphicon, the big Power Rangers convention a few years back, uh, as Kyle was wrapping up the book, he was doing Shattered Grid, which is his big um, event. And we put together a panel, which was a live read of like excerpts from Shattered Grid with cast members from the show from across the years. And there was about, I think, a thousand people in that room. And it was just like a, such a cool collective shared emotive experience um, i think you know writing comics it's one of the things you don't get to get is reactions a lot of the time especially live reactions to your work um you just send it out to the world and you hear later like oh i really love this but you don't hear people gasp when something dramatic happens or cheer when something exciting happens so um yeah in some ways i've been chasing that high this whole time like oh i just hope people are reacting in the same way that they did in, the, in that room that day uh, any conventions, signings, appearances coming up? <laughs> um, I am hoping to be at New York Comic Con. Um, it's still a little unsure. It will depend on some things financially. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to dig around under the couch and see if there's any coins under there. Um, maybe sell some lemonade on the street. And if that all goes well, then yeah, hopefully I'll be at New York Comic Con. I think the Massiverse as a collective, we will have a booth or a the table um so if i am there i will be there you'll be able to find me there and i'll sign whatever you have but erica erica will be there i will be there kyle will be there our assistant editor michael basudel mr massivus himself will be there so there'll be plenty of people from in front of go red there to um yeah share your love if you're there an ultimate question what are you reading right now mm. uh hmm I'm very behind on my pull list. I'm actually like just now, this is show you how far behind I am catching up on Chips at Arcee Daredevil. Uh, love, love that. I don't know. I think like I, there's something about Chips' work 
And I think the word earnestness can sometimes use, be used in a negative way, but I think that there is a extremely positive earnestness to Chip's work. I think they're, they're just like very human characters that I really respond to. Um, so yeah, loving that. Outside of comics, I've been reading um, a book about ethics. Uh, I don't, do you guys know the show The Good Place? Oh, the yeah. NBC. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So Mike Shaw, who created that, because um, that whole show is about moral philosophy, kind of handled in a tokusatsu way, right? It's like moral philosophy through the most creative and inventive lens you could imagine. Uh, he wrote a kind of like idiot's guide to moral philosophy and how to like apply moral philosophy in your life and how to try and be a good person despite how intensely complicated that is. Uh, and yeah, I've been really loving that and finding that very inspirational and um, it's helping me think about how I'm approaching stories at the moment and what I want to contribute with stories and, and give to the world. That's great. Well, Matt, this has been a fantastic time. Uh, final question before we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with Infernal Girl Red and everything else that you got going on? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. I'm at Matthew Groom. That's one T in Matthew, G-R-O-O-M for my surname. Uh, you can follow Infernal Girl Red on Twitter at Infernal Girl Red, all one word. And if you go to infernogorred.com now, that redirects to the Kickstarter. So nice, easy way to find the Kickstarter. And of course, we'd love you to just have a scroll through and check it out and see if that you know interests you and you'd like to support us. As I said before, you can jump in at the start, no prior anything required, uh, and we'd love to have you. All right, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. This would be great. Um, had a lot of fun. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A, and a shout-out at the end of every episode, a $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out, a $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, a $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator, any $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Will Redmond, Tobias Carroll, Natalie Jordan, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember, in the 1970s, Stan Lee reportedly used to maintain a collection of toupees that made it appear as if he was growing his hair out. Excelsior! W-N-Q-A!